Everybody, it is episode 95 of the Running Rogue podcast. Creeping up, creeping up. Creepin up. Yeah. Moving towards the big one. Approaching 100. We are recording here on Steve's birthday. So happy birthday, Steve. Thank you. Thank uh, you. How's it going so far? You know, I'm not a big birthday person. <laughs> so uh, it's not one of my. Uh, I think it's. I kind of think of birthdays as special to the person that's, that it's going for in that in, in it's like my own feeling the thing i like the most about my birthday is it's october 4th and the weather usually changes <laughs> although this year we didn't get it quite as nice but um it's coming next week it's coming yep anyway it's been good so, so happy birthday thanks thank for you. sharing your voice with us on your birthday today we've got an episode that i think many many will find interesting and and will be keen to listen to because there's been a lot of debate, a lot of consternation over the last week or so after the Boston qualifying gap was published last week. As we had all the all the folks who were on that border wondering where would it be this year. Last year it came in at 3 minutes and 23 seconds. And so, you know, there were a lot of people that thought they were safe, so to speak this year but ultimately it jumped by another just under a minute and a half to 452 and they simultaneously announced that all standards were dropping by five minutes for the 2020 race so basically the, the <laughs> had a double that was a the, double the gut bogey, punch the bogey just yeah. moved yeah. you got pitched in one overnight. kidney and then got pitched in the next kidney yeah <laughs> it's like not only are you not in with your whatever time, 4.0-something or 3.50-something, but also now you've got to run even faster to get in. And so 7,248 people this year were turned away. Shut out. After registering. And, man, that's tough. I had a few in my group. I know you've had, you had at least one that I know of in your group who – fall into that category you know i had somebody that i believe was at 407 406 somewhere in that range and i and i had assured her that certainly you know it wouldn't jump another you know 45 seconds to shut her out but sure enough it did and then some you know i know you had speculated that the weather from this past year might might turn people away might scare people away but in some ways it made it where obviously it made it even more compelling for people to try to get into this year's race. And so there's lots to talk about with just that news, which we'll get to. But also we're going to talk about for those that want to get into Boston at some point with these new standards. What does that mean? What do you need to do to raise your game to get to Boston in 2020 or beyond? And so we're going to kind of break it down, help you think through if you're one of those that has Boston as a goal how do you now adjust your process and your mindset to go get these new standards? And so we're going we're gonna to break all of that down in this episode. No current events this time. We just dropped our Chicago preview. And so we'll, we'll let that tide you over until next week. And we're just talking all things Boston qualifying basically this week. We could predict a shorter episode, but that will not happen when we the two of us sit around across from each other and talk about Boston. Especially that's for sure. with this, yeah. <laughs> so let's start just by digesting it all. Steve, what was your reaction when you heard about that cutoff time of 4.52? Uh, 
my first reaction was shock. You know, I had uh, our manager at the uh, Rogue running store in Austin, Texas, Sam, uh, who I coach and who um, is your assistant coach, Chris. Yep. Um, he asked me months ago what I thought would be the Boston scenario, what it would take to get in. He was, I think, um, like three, f- he was three minutes and 45 seconds or something like that under the time that he wanted. What he thought he needed. He was three minutes and 45 seconds, let's say. And he asked me, and it was a, it was a quick question. I was walking out the door, so it wasn't something I th- sat there and thought long and hard about. But my first reaction was, listen, um, we've been tending and trending towards faster and faster times. But that tending and that, te- that trending sort of did two little jumps and then it, it did uh, two jumps and then it, it, it settled. And then it jumped again, a big one, and I thought it was going to settle right away, number one. I didn't think we would get two big bumps. I thought it would sit at the three. I thought it would sit at the 3.30 line if everything was all, all was said and done because it sort of trended that way. Although we only have, like, since 2013 is trends, so they're probably not really trends from a statistical analysis perspective. But that was just the way my brain was working. But I said, but there's a key thing. Boston was really, really nasty weather. So that day was going to be a very hard day for people to requalify at. So I predicted that maybe uh, only that 25% of the people who expected to requalify for Boston at Boston would not achieve that. Um, and so I said, okay, let me just do quick math in my head. And I went, okay, I'm going to say 2.30 is the time it's going to take this year. It's going to drop down from the last year because purely and simply because of the Boston weather. So I was in utter shock, Chris, because I had made a poor prediction and was literally almost twice, almost 100% wrong. It was two, 452 is what it takes. I was saying 230. That's almost double the amount of time, another two minutes and 30 seconds than what I expected. So my first feeling was shock. That was my first feeling. The second feeling, Chris, frankly, was, oh, fuck, I got a lot of work to do. Like <laughs> my job is now gotten a lot harder because so many of the people that we work with on a day-to-day basis, both in um, our Team Rogue group and Chris and your group, and also the group of people that I coach, that we coach in our podcast training group, Boston is such a big focus for um, them and what they're doing. These are, com- these are athletes who have committed to, com- like you all who are listening, you're athletes who are committed to command performance races, understand and take seriously your training and your training objectives, and for many of you, training for Boston is the thing that sort of makes it worth more. It makes it seem like the Olympics for the everyman or the Olympic trials for the everyman, as we've discussed before, Chris. So I was really then I was like, oh, shit, I've got a lot of work to do. I've got some I've got some bridges to build and some lifting to do. And I need to start thinking a little bit about what my real fundamental attitude about this topic is before I just start in typical and fashion, just freaking running off at the mouth and then getting myself into trouble. So I'm still going to run off at the mouth and get myself into trouble on this episode, Chris, for sure. Some of you are going to not be happy with my assessments to this, but, um, or you're going to be, or you might take, take issue with them and that's fine. These are just opinions. Chris and I have differing opinions on this particular topic. I think that's also going to make this particular episode good because it's always more interesting when Chris and I have, um, count point and counterpoint, especially if we feel pretty pretty strongly about those so what was your first reaction chris were they was it similar so i was shocked as well because again i 
I predicted somewhere in the neighborhood of what you said, maybe even slightly below where the cutoff time was last year. But to be close to the five-minute barrier was was a surprise. My second thought was probably, and people won't want to hear this, but like, but was all was sort of how cool is that? <laughs> that yeah, basically, that's a real legitimate response. Basically, Boston simply by creating this this invisible line has single-handedly made Americans five minutes faster over the last basically five years, five, six years. It's really kind of cool and just shows you the power of standards and the power of having a line in the sand or or a line that you don't know where it's going to be drawn, and so therefore you're trying to get as much as you can. And because of the nature of that, people are basically trying to squeeze every second out of of their qualifying races and therefore kind of push this down. I mean, as coaches, we've been talking about with our runners for a long time, hey, don't shoot for the standard, shoot for five minutes under the standard. And so we've basically been training people to run exactly what the cutoff was for the last several years anyway. And so essentially everybody's been doing that. It's like, look, if I want to guarantee my position, I need to get five minutes. And that's where we've ended up. Now, third, third reaction, probably frustration, which is realizing that you know, while I think it's right for Boston to drop the standards by five minutes, I wish they had come back and said, hey, look, for this first year for 2020, if you get the standard, you're in no matter what. You know, I can't imagine that given the short notice, so to speak, on running this new standard that suddenly we're going to have this, mat, you know, suddenly we're going to be so far under the standard next year that we, you know, we need a, you know, even resetting them again, right? So, you would imagine that the number that qualifies with this new standard would be manageable enough that Boston could accept everybody. And so I wish that for a year they would say, look, we're going to do away with this buffer concept for this year. We're going to make it work no matter what the numbers play out to be. Because now, again, you go into the same scenario where you might qualify with the new standard, but you still have to wonder, is it enough? And they're going to apply the same application rules from what we understand so that everybody with 20 minutes you know under the standard now under the new standard gets a apply first and so on and so forth until they release what will be a new cutoff time based on these new standards and to me that's just that's adding insult to injury after already sort of pulling the rug out from under people you know you've got people doing chicago for example that have been training with a certain set of standards in mind now suddenly have to think about it differently. And is that even fair? And we're going to talk about that on this podcast. We and are. Your, your points, Chris, are all the points we're going to discuss here, which is why we're taking up an entire episode with this. Um, Chris texted me last night and said, what time are we doing podcasts? And I'm like, I don't really care, but I've got our topic. This is what <laughs> I want to talk about. And thankfully, I very rarely am the person leading with what our topics are. But this was one that I have been thinking long and hard about and wrestling with, Chris, in a lot of different ways. Both, um, I mean, I've got a, I guess for the first time I'm saying this out loud, but I've got a goal to qualify for the Boston Marathon. And Whoa. it's, uh, hey. and it, and, and so those standards changed. And so my, you know, in my old man category, I had to look at it. I think I'll be okay. But, you know, it's one of those things where I had a visceral self-interest here, number one. Number two, again, I coach so many athletes that are on the cusp of this. Number three, I'm sort of, you and I are holding our, we are one of the few 
we're the few people out there who are holding up the 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 burning the the like like we're holding up the torch for the everyday average runner to be an elite level athlete and we've we've been fighting that fight for years and years and years now and here we are again presented with another opportunity to assess the value of what we do and also assess our job performance right yeah. we have the greatest jobs in the world people we know that um, and it's so it was it's just presented so many different nuances that I'm just excited about about getting into and going through so as a coach I don't think I fully appreciated in my initial reactions how it would affect my athletes who are in this window <laughs> yeah yeah I don't and know that you worked with as many the, athletes who have been cusp. in that window for as long as I've worked well, with athletes I have a in lot that window. of them and and sort of maybe I in my head was a little too flippant about how I kind of quickly said, all right, well, as I said in the last episode, came on. Like we raise our, they raise our standards, we raise our standards, let's do this. And I texted that to a few people who had expressed concerns. And I said, look, bars raised, we're ready. Now, as I had more conversations with people and started to understand more about people's relationship with this particular goal which i guess i already stand it i already already understand it at some level as a coach but it's been so long for me as an athlete that i've been close to this standard that i've i'm a little bit disconnected from that feeling that visceral feeling as an athlete as i had those conversations and got connected to those feelings this week Mm. i realized changes yeah it changes my perspective a little bit i realized how big a deal this was and how hard a time people are having wrestling with this not just because now they know that it's going to be harder to get their goal but they also feel at some level i think that it's it's calling it unfair might not be the right word but it feels a little bit it, it starts to make it feel arbitrary in a way that i don't know if that affects people's desire to get the goal or not but it does make them feel bad about the whole thing you know like the and it, and it adds frustration and sort of consternation and sort of i don't know it it brings a lot of confusing feelings i think for people and how they should feel how they should react and so i get it and i've been having more conversations this week that are following along those lines and most people this is a big deal and they're and they're appropriately wrestling with it in some in difficult ways yeah i've you know I, i've been away from being a uh, a, a runner who was training for a long time. You know, I think most of our podcast listeners know that I spent a good hiatus from the roads and trails. I was always doing some running, but not a lot. But I've recently been doing more consistent running, and um, I, I do notice that big change. Those people, those athletes that I work with who are 15 minutes faster or in that 15 to 20 minutes faster than the time they have to run for their BQ have zero... I mean, it is almost to a person um, zero respect for the suffering of those who don't. So be very wary, those of you who are just missing it or not getting it or trying to get it but can't. Your your peers who get those times and they've got them before, they don't really care. They, they think you should suck it up and go get it, right? They won't tell you that. They'll give you love and give you other things. But they just have no ability to, to really think through why this is so why this affects you and why it affects you in such a sort of almost a philosophical sort of like kind of the way that a lot of people are reacting right now chris to our to this 
you know, Kavanaugh discussion that's going on from a political standpoint of so many different pieces getting pulled here, so many different threads getting pulled out in the public sphere that people are looking at it and going, where is my grounding? Like, where do my feet go? Where do I put my feet down in terms of what I want out of my experience? And um, there's really tough things with that. There's also really positive things with that. So hopefully this this topic will... Um, I do think that anybody who has any who is going to Boston or has any interest in Boston should listen to this all the way through or any and obviously anybody that wants to get to Boston this will be really appropriate for you but I do think those listeners who are already Boston qualified and get it every year with relative ease so I think there's a lot of really good discussion here that Chris and I are going to be having because some of you guys need to recognize where your brothers and sisters in arms are coming from because I do hear a sort of a patent dismissal of the concerns that maybe you you sort of felt first, Chris, that but you woke up to because you're a coach. And I want our listeners who do get that on a consistent basis to have some empathy and sympathy for the experience that your your training partners and your friends on the roads are feeling about this. Um, of course, later I'll eviscerate yeah. all of those statements, but <laughs> but for now we're going to be sympathetic and yeah. and and lend an ear and empathy for sure is definitely needed and and essential in this conversation. Agree. I also, well, we can talk about potential answers later, but I also tend to think that there is no perfect solution that will make everybody happy here, and we can debate. We will debate that. We will debate but potential anyway. answers in a second. Yeah. Before we go there, I wanted to give some people history and just remind people that Boston hasn't always been a qualifying race. Before 1970, it was an open race. It was the people's well, race. open to... <laughs> open to men. Uh, open to half the population. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, open to men, but there was no qualifying standard. They thought of it as the people's race in Boston, and there was there was huge consternation when they introduced qualifying standards for the first time because there was a worry amongst the people of Boston that it would become a race that was only for the quote-unquote elite or faster athletes. And so there was a big debate about it, but qualifying times were introduced in 1971 standard, at the time, for every runner, which was uh, basically four hours. You had to have run four hours before being able to be eligible to run Boston. It quickly dropped in 1971 to 3.30 Hmm. and stayed there until basically 1976. In 77 to 79, they introduced standards for men and women and dropped the men's standards significantly the men's standard for 19 to 39 was three hours at that time, 3.30 for 40-plus. And then the women's standard, all divisions, was 3.05 at that time. In 1980— Think about that. Yeah, 3.05 think, think for women. People, think about that. When, when you—yeah, okay, just some perspective. Anyway. Another way to also control the size of the women's field, which is sort of <laughs> silly. But anyway, but just giving you history— 1980, after they had over 7,000 participants in the 79 race, they said, okay, we need to make it even tighter. So 19 to 39 standard for the 1980 race was 250. 40 plus for men was 310. Women was 320, all divisions. So just think about that. 250, 310. And in the 1980 race, with those standards, they had over 5,000 participants. Which is crazy, right? Yep. It's crazy. And so people met the standards. Then 
in the early 80s, they started to stratify the age groups a little bit more, introduced a women's qualifying standard for masters. Those kind of adjusted through the 80s. And then it wasn't until the 90s that we got the more traditional qualifying standards. And from 90 to 2002, you introduced basically the age group categories as we know them now for men and women, 18 to 34, 35 to 39, 40 to 44, and on up. At that time, the men's standard, the fastest men's standard was, was 310, women's was 340, and effectively we've been operating under that paradigm since they changed to in 2012 to this new registration process whereby basically the standard moves effectively every year. And, you know, and now we've just... Uh, they had already dropped the times a little bit to 305 in 2013 at the time that they made that change. And now we're at three hours, the fastest men's qualifying time for 18 to 34. And then for women, it's at 330. So that's a little bit of history, but just just there. So we've been everywhere from a four-hour standard for everybody to 250 for men, 305 for women. And now, obviously, we're a little bit, quote-unquote, slower than that. And obviously, we've got much more stratified age groups. But essentially, it's already, it's already, we already have history of it being essentially arbitrary and moving around. What does that, so what does that say to you? <coughs> um, I guess it says that, in a, in a way... Well, I have a very strong, strong opinion about this moving and changing standard. You um, don't like it. I'm so utterly and completely against it. Um, not because, not from a, philosoph- I mean, I keep saying the word philosophical, but not from a perspective that says that people have a right to anything. Because, you know, I really don't believe people have any, I don't really actually believe in inherent human rights. I think... It's the law of the jungle out there, people, and <laughs> you're going to get eaten or not eaten. We've created a milieu where you don't necessarily get eaten, but if I'm on a trail and a mountain lion comes to get me, I'm going to have to figure out how to do it. I don't have a right. Dear mountain lion, don't eat me. Like, you don't have... We've created them. They're societal constructs we've created, which is not... It's, it's great. There's lots of great societal constructs. But I think that people don't have a right to it, but I think that the problem is is that we have a... We have a badge of honor. We have a way of determining quality. And we have a standard for set quality. In almost every other category that I know of, Chris, in the world, that, stati- that's, that category and that standard is um, not changing. It, you do a certain number of hours of work to get this. You battle for some, if you're think about it for somebody who's trying to get a black belt in karate or a black belt in some in, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu or whatever it is. There's a process and a pattern by which you do, which is incredibly rigorous, incredibly difficult to do it. And if at the end of it all, when you went to go get that, was completely and capriciously up to the judge to decide one way or another on that given day based on things that have nothing to do with your performance or what you did, but just based on the number of people that maybe were going to get a black belt that year, it's just there's no way for you to compete. Right, Chris? So they're moving this 
idea of competition and creating a competitive environment, which is what the Boston ethos is, right? It's about competition, Chris. It's not about any old person can sign up and get on the starting line. You have to be good enough to get on the starting line. So there's a competition there. And if there is competition, and my my argument is, then let's give people a standard. I would prefer it to go for women to 305. Like... I know there's a whole other argument that we're going to get into about why that is, and maybe to maybe move it to men to 245. Now, of course, they won't have they won't have people run the race, but is that really what Boston's about? My understanding is that Boston is about bringing the creme de la creme, the best in the world, to the starting line, except for these excuse me, except for these people who are there for a charity reasons, which. I have a real problem with charity at this race, but I have talked to enough people who are um, who have made huge impacts on our world because of the charity element to it that I'm not as strongly anti-charity as I was, uh, the charity crew as I was uh, a year or two years ago as I've, nuan- I've gotten a little more nuanced in this discussion. I still think that that standard should be not moving, that there should be... 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 entries for charity, period, and raise the value. And if people don't pay it, then you change. Let that be the number that changes. How much it costs to get into the race, not how fast you have to run to get into the race. Why are we making this decision? Why is Boston making this decision on the people who the race matters the most to? Because the people with money will pay. But the people who don't have money, they already have to pay so much money to go to this race. They have to pay so much money to get a hotel room. They have to pay so much for their hotel. For everything is so expensive. They had to they had to go to other races to get their qualifying time to run it. Like they're already tapped out from a money perspective. Go to the people who have money to get the money and let the people who get their time run their time. So and there's so many different levels of nuance to that argument, Chris, but that's my basic point is it's a competitive race. Let's set a standard and one set standard and then every single year make those fuckers at the BAA work. Figure out what's the new standard going to be. But every year change the standard if you need to. And and that standard is, is expressed on September whatever the year before. Or however time out, far out they want to do it. However they want to play that. And that's the time. And they buffer back, Chris, 1,000, 2,000 entries. And they hold them. And they hold them to wait to see what happens through registration. And they protect the time. And they protect the athlete that ran the time. They don't protect the people who are going to go for charity. Those people are going to pay their money anyway. Let that number flex. You'll still get your money. They'll get every penny that they have budgeted because I understand that charity thing is a budget line item on their thing. $36 million raised last year. So they'll always get $36 million. They'll always get $36 million, Chris. You just make it harder to get it. That's not going to change. But you're stealing from the people the race is supposed to be about. And I think BAA has got it fucking ass backwards. And if they're not careful, a thing like this is the kind of thing because you saw the repercussions in your group. You felt people wonder, whoa, is this even something I want to do? Boston should be careful because they could lose people because of this. And personally, I think they should lose people. I hope they do lose people because I think it's wrong-headed. It's completely on the wrong foot. There's ways to make those budget light items in other areas, and let's guarantee each year what those athletes are going to run and how they're going to run it. Let's guarantee them when they finish and come across the starting the finish line of their qualifying race that they know that they've earned a position on the starting line of the Boston Marathon. Now Boston really, really, really means something, Chris, 
it really means something. So your solution then would be to basically reset the standards every year and guarantee everybody that who achieves that standard. that standard that they are in. Correct. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think it's interesting. The challenge with that, of course, is that then when do you make that adjustment so that people have enough time to account for whatever change in standards into their training? Well, they they and already, already they're said, already doing that. We already said that's this already happening. Kind of maybe, you know, but. I mean, for me, if like if we're going that route, it's like okay. Well, why couldn't we do registration in July, right? You versus could. September, there's no reason you couldn't, because basically there's no big marathons between between May and or June, you know, and, and September. Agree. So you could do registration in July, reset the standard in July, and then give people time to at least react going into their fall races. Oh wait, there are races, Chris's. We're going to have a discussion on this. The races that they have are the races uh, that... The downhill races. Yeah, exactly. We'll go off on that topic. But anyway. So, so okay. So, yeah. So, maybe reset the standards every year. I, I guess I would probably lean more towards... I would lean more towards resetting the standards in a way that you know you're not going to fill the field. So, instead of what is now three hours for the men and 3.30 for the women, I would say let's go to 2.50 and 3.20 or something like that so we know that and then stagger the rest accordingly so that we know that we're not going to fill the field with with qualified athletes and then if you want to then fill the field with more charity runners or maybe let in people beyond the standard based on a lottery system where you know if you're beyond the standard and you apply and you're close enough to the standard then you could then get in Additionally, at a later time, why wouldn't they just do that anyway? So do it the and other way. You know what I mean? Thing. So like, do it the other way instead of I having still think instead I of having a cutoff below the standard, have a cutoff above the standard upon which, in a second wave of registration, people could potentially still get in based on their time. I prefer that to the current model. I think that's a that's an interesting approach. Of course, I don't want the money to go. I don't want those positions to go to charity people. I just don't. Um, <laughs> Again, I'm not against charity in the theory, and, I, and I'm very happy that that amount of money is being raised. It's going to continue to be raised no matter what you do, okay, as long as Boston is valuable to people. Um, I still think, Chris, it brings in this idea that I think is so important. You cross the finish line of your qualifying race, and you know. I coach a lot of athletes that are trying to get Olympic trials qualifying standards, and we know when they reach a standard, they're getting in no matter what. Um, and if they, your idea of trickling down is solid because we got an athlete that got into the Olympic trials trickling down. But guess what? She had to go there to wave at babies and, 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 and jog. It was a hot day and it was tough and she was beat up because she'd worked so hard to get a qualifier. So she got to be a part of it, but it was, it was um, sort of didn't expect it and it happened late and it was hard to train and get ready for the race based on the late timing of it but the the point being i still think i think that if you want to let boston continue to resonate the way i think it has the power to resonate with the everyday person guarantee a time and when you come across that finish line you're gone you're, you're guaranteed a position on the starting line and i i believe that boston will gain so much from that that i that's my argument i do know what you're saying i like yours better than their current solution but yeah. I still think it's a slippery slope that allows I not mean, a slippery slope. I, I would just, even lean towards saying, okay, well, let's just set a harder standard, make it 255, the top standard for men, and and you know 325 for women, 
say, hey, we're going to have these standards for two, three years, whatever time period you want to set. Give people a window to work towards You don't towards like the one-year change. I don't like the one-year change because I feel like then it's kind of still a moving target all the time and and really getting ready for Boston and and training for it. You know, it's a two- to three-year window for a lot of people to, to really put in the work needed to get there. And to me, it's just it's unfair then to change that bogey every year. It's more fair than the current system because at least you know. But it's still it's not giving people the opportunity within a given qualifying window to really do what they need to do to focus on one standard. And so I would rather see that. And if if we have to go even faster and skew the other way, do it in order to give us that window and then see what happens. If people meet the standard, then you adjust it in two or three years time. That's. I guess the preference I would have versus an annual reset. But I, I, I do agree with you though, that a standard should be a standard. You should be able to celebrate in the moment yes. that, Hey, I've done everything I needed to do to go and stand on the starting line at Boston and to have all of this, to have this wait till the registration window. And then this week to week and a half of after you register to not know and to be checking the damn message boards about predicting what the cutoff times are and all that stuff. I mean, that is no way to treat people and no way for somebody to find out, Hey, well you got the standard, but it wasn't good enough. Sorry. You can't show, you can't tell the line. And that feeling just having seen runners go through it is just, it's terrible. And it's not really what Boston's about. I mean, it's gotten me to this. I mean, I didn't really give two shits, Chris, four or five years ago. I really didn't. I mean, at, at 2013, as I started to see people not make it, Right. And then I thought, well, how does that affect and impact their ability to stay motivated and excited about our sport? And I know we've lost, I know for a fact we've lost people. We've lost people to our great sport because they don't want to deal with this up and down. Did I qualify? Did I not qualify? And it just seems, it's, I'm just viscerally and adamantly against it. And there's a simple, easy fix. It doesn't change the economics of the event. And I guess I, what I'm doing is I really would love to hear from Boston. I don't understand. And if somebody else does understand, tell me how this idea that Chris and I have, whether it's my less, my only one-year adjustment or Chris's two to three to four-year adjustment, regardless, but what, what does it, how does it negatively impact the race? Because um, I don't really see a way it negatively impacts it. And um, I'm curious if other people have done the math or done the numbers or figured out and, and understand. And maybe if somebody from BAA wants to respond because they're listening, it'd be wonderful. Now, a couple of sort of rabbit holes maybe that we need to go down here before we transition to what, what should people do about it is we've got to talk. So there were a lot of people predicting that the cutoff time would actually be in the four to five minute range. Because the number of qualified athletes, if you look at all marathons, using Marathon Guide as a source, was up by 5,000 people for this year versus last year. And so there was speculation you had more applicants and therefore you'd have a higher cutoff time. And so there was a lot of people that actually predicted the experts that, that this would end up being the case. So people predicted this would be the case. Now, some of that is because knowing that there's a moving target, people have raised their game and they've just gotten faster knowing that, hey, I've got to basically shoot for five minutes faster in order to get in. But also we've got some cheat codes going on, some <laughs> some some marathon hacks going on with the advent of this whole series of races to the Rebel Races where they're doing all these downhill marathons. It seems like the downhill marathon has become 
more popular than ever with St. George and Mount Charleston and all the Rebel races. Well, let's not throw Mount, don't throw St. George into that pot. But anyway, I'll, I'll make that argument later. But don't throw okay. them in there. But anyway, okay. they've well, been going on for that race have, has been 25, 30 still, years history of a still race. Still a downhill race. Anyway, yeah, people get to the be popularity of, of it has increased because of this very situation. And to me, that's also something Boston needs to look at and adjust, which is the standard for a course to qualify for Boston qualification because these downhill courses, frankly, they're it, they're they're a shortcut to doing the work to get the standard. It's it's easier to do it on a downhill course, and so I would like to see Boston setting a standard that says, look, you can only have your if your point to point, you can only have I don't know 300, 400, 500 feet, whatever it is, net downhill. 800 feet, I don't care. Pick a number that you can't be above in terms of net downhill in order to be considered a qualifying race. But a lot of these Rebel races, I mean, it's 1,000 feet, 1,500 feet, start to finish, and it's it's different. It's easier. It's not as legit as doing it on a flatter course. And so I think that adjustment needs to happen. I'm 100% with you, Chris. I've been arguing about these cheater courses for a long time. Um, athletes I coach continue to utilize them. I do my best to help them, but I always, in my own mind, put an asterisk beside their result because, in my opinion, they are um, shortcutting a system that shouldn't be. Now, I disagree. I do take and put St. George in a different category because I've coached many, many, many athletes to St. George, and the nuances and the difficulties of that course, it drops a lot, but you climb late in the race, Chris, and the drops on that course mess people up and... I've noticed that St. George, it's not, I don't, when anybody comes to me and says, I want to get my BQ and I'm going to do St. George to do it, I always smile at them and say, you need to run it once before because you're not going to get your BQ unless you've got a huge cushion. You're not going to get your BQ at St. George the first time because it's going to fuck you up. The downhilling on that course blows you up and then there's a big monster hill at a crucial critical juncture on the race course that basically takes all the posers and all those people that are using downhill races and rings them just rings them and throws them on the side of the road. I've just watched it over and over again. St. George is real and it's hard. And if you get it right, you can get a little bit of a cheat to the Boston because you've run it before. But we actually have built into our training protocols, Chris, for St. George athletes. We ask them to do our downhill repetitions. We make them get prepared for that race. So I kind of take St. George and put it in a bit of a different category. Number one for history. Number two for difficulty. Number three, um, because I know it's it's proven to be more of a challenge. Now, these other races like Mount Charleston and all these other ones that the Revel races, they are basically taking a time looking at race places they can put one on. They're basically creating courses for Boston qualifying. And they're not advertising that as such. It's not something they put on their website as a, as a sale. Um... They're selling run downhill in a beautiful location, right? But that's what it is, and that's what it's being taken as. And you're seeing, and that's what surprised us, Chris. When we had our numbers, we did not look at the influx of two new Revel races over the course of one year. Two new races created by one company to optimize opportunities under basically downhill course-related benefits hacking the system to get qualifiers and we didn't do that math and because we didn't do that math we were wrong and if you took the rebel the two new rebel races out i bet you we would have been pretty close so 
I'm not against Revel doing what they want to do and putting on events that they want to, but I do think Boston needs to look really hard and clear at those races. Now, to the argument for those who have run those Revel races or races like those, listen, I know you guys suffered. Those races are typically done in a place, and they've been done at time of year where it's hot. And, you know, I've had athletes who were prepared to run their BQ on a flat course, in my opinion, if they had chosen to do it in a different window of time and had chosen to do it, you know, basically September through in, our, in Austin from September to May, that's in our window of getting ready for races. And if they did it during that time frame, I think they could have gotten their qualifier. But they went to a Rebel race so they could have that cushion and they got cooked. So I do know that those Rebel races are not a guarantee. It's not like, a, it's not like you know, a softball, right? It's, it's, it's still a really tough ask to get your BQ, but it's a hack for sure. Um, as we saw, it's at least a minute and a half of a hack, Chris. Yep. At least a minute and a half, because that's the difference between last year and this year. So Boston's net elevation drop is 477 feet. We know Boston's a tough course. So if I were Boston, if I were petitioning Boston, I'd say, look, let's make that That's a great the idea. cutoff. Yep. yep. Anything that's f- less than 477 feet net downhill is legit. Anything more than that, sorry. You can run those races. You can be proud of your results there, but that's not that doesn't count for Boston qualifying. I mean, it, I mean, we already know that Boston itself doesn't even count for record qualifying, and so why, if you have a standard, would you allow people to hack it with these sort of downhill races? I would like to see them not do that. So that's one thing which would take people out of the mix, which would potentially change the game in terms of having a more firm standard. The other thing we've got to talk about, which is a tricky subject, is the men's versus women's standard. And there's a lot of discussion that the women's standards are easier. If you look at the world record itself, you know now we've got 201 for the men, 215 for the women. So we've got a 14-minute difference between the men's and women's world records, between Elliot and Paula. And, then, and yet, between the top standards, men and women, there's a 30-minute difference, which would seem more favorable to the women to get into this race than the men. Is that fair? My argument is I don't I don't really I don't really care about fair to be honest personally when it comes to this topic. Yeah, you know, I, I understand why Boston is doing it. If you look at their race they're fifty five percent men, forty five percent women, which is significantly more favorable than Berlin, which is as we said earlier in the Berlin preview, Berlin is 75% men, 25% women. So if Boston needs to have quote unquote easier standards for women in order to get more women in this field, I don't care personally. And so I'm not necessarily one that would call for them to make the women's standard more stringent because I would prefer to see a more balanced field. And if that's what they need to do to get it, fine by me. But you might have a different perspective, Steve. I do have a bit of a different perspective, and this is probably one of the places where I'm going to get raked over the coals. I, I understand, first of all, before I even start this argument, which may or may not be specious, but we'll just start here, is I do understand that if you look at the Olympic trials, U.S. Olympic trials qualifying standards between men and women are pretty similar. Um, there's a 25-minute difference between the men's and women's standards ballpark right um maybe even closer to two almost to well, it's 26 tw- right 219 and 245 right so um i do see that and i know that that has happened because of them wanting to get more women at the olympic trials 
Um, but I will tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that for me to get a man qualified for the Olympic trials and me to get a woman qualified for the Olympic trials is apples and oranges. That is, that the men's standard is significantly more difficult um, for a man than the woman's standard is for a woman. I can't talk to anybody's personal perspective or their particular place, but those are not apples to oranges. And I guarantee if you look at the number of people on the starting line, if you look at those, you'll see that they are not. And so I see Boston the same way. So my argument is why are we – I already – understand what is happening in the Olympic trials and I kind of am for it is what it is in the Olympic trials and so I'm kind of just making a little bit of an argument for argument's sake with the Boston <laughs> I just want it to be known that they're not even so women when you do complain about your qualifying standard recognize that you're already being given um, in my opinion at least five minutes probably closer to ten but um, that doesn't mean that you didn't earn it and you don't have the right to be proud of your result. Just know that if apples were apples, um, and somebody could argue with me, well, how do you know what the what is a men's performance versus a woman's performance? I'll just take the data, run the numbers, and you'll find out that that the current standard for the for both the Olympic trials and the Boston qualifying standards are easier for women. And I would like to see those balanced but I comp I would like to see them balanced as they can be over time as women get more and more excited about the sport as they find um, ways to balance family and their occupations and the other th the other needs that are a part of all of what it means to be a modern um, woman in our world I understand there's challenges there that are much different from what a man's challenges are so I'm not dis I'm not I'm not, not saying that that's not there. I'm just saying the closer we can get those two things to apples to apples, the better over time, in my opinion. And I think Boston should also be looking at that. But I agree that getting getting equal numbers of people to the starting line, regardless, is good. But I think women should be prepared that someday there may be a change as these numbers get adjusted. And that day will be a very difficult if... Because we're going to talk about another topic that's going to make my argument for me too, Chris. Mm -hmm. So if you look at just the ratios of the world records and apply that to the Boston standards. If women are at 330, it would show, if you use the same ratios, it would say that the men should be at 308 for the fastest mm -hmm. time. So basically you're saying, or you've got the men's standard is eight minutes harder effectively than the women's. If you're just looking at world record ratios, which we can argue is right or wrong. But nevertheless... Personally, I don't think that's something that Boston should met mess with. I think that's a can of worms. I'd rather see equity in the field than equity in people's perceptions of fairness of relative to the standards. I do want them, as I said, to cut out those downhill races in terms of being eligible. And if they need to make the standard more ridiculous or, or more more <laughs> more difficult to achieve, sorry, not more ridiculous, more difficult to achieve, <laughs> Then they have it now. If I that's don't what think they you need, misspoke. If that's anyway. what they need to do to get the field sizes under control where they need them to be. And I think you and I both agree on that. Absolutely. All right. So with that as 45 minutes of us ranting on the Boston standards, let's talk about what we want people to do about it. You know, our tips for if you're in this camp of this being your goal what do you do? And there's two categories of people here. There's those that might be racing in the next 
handful of weeks that at this point don't really have time to adjust. Now, maybe they've already in their head, maybe they're already thinking five minutes faster because they knew that that cutoff time was trending that direction. But does that mean they now need to think six minutes, seven minutes faster? We don't know how the cutoff time is going to play out next year. And so we wanted to start by addressing that group. How, did it, how, did, how does that group think about it? And what adjustments do they need to, to make at this point to training, if that's applicable, and certainly to race plans as it relates to what might be happening over the next, say, four to eight weeks. Those people that basically can't really adjust their training for a new goal time. What would you say to them, Steve? I would say you should send a letter to Boston and tell them how terrible this scenario is and how unfair it is and how ridiculous it is that you're presented days before your races or weeks before your races with a moving standard because the moving standard needs to change. Okay, after you do that, then what I think you need to do is just say, check your training and look at yourself in the mirror, look at your results in your workouts, and determine one of, you have one of two options. You were trying to get a BQ. How far away were you? If you feel like you were close and that the new time, let's just use for a, a woman who's trying to get a qualifier. I think a woman this year can choose to go, if they thought they were in 330 shape, they should still tr strive to run 329.59 because that's what they want to do anyway. Um, if they thought they were in 335 shape, then to try to go out and run 330 would be foolish and I think that that is a um, it's just not fair but we know life's not fair and so you're going to have to deal with it but I wouldn't change I wouldn't have anybody change their overall race strategy or their overall goal time because of the Boston fiasco that's going on right now I, I would say Live to f go out and have the best race experience you can. Get as close as you can. Lay it up. Get as close as you can. Just like we were talking on our last podcast, Chris, about our, our special episode about what Gwen Jorgensen and Laura Thweet should do. They should lay up, get themselves much closer to that 225 range so they can be talking about running with the best in the world. And I would say the same thing for our listeners. Get yourself to 230 or three, uh, three minutes closer, 230, two minutes and 30 seconds closer, three minutes closer two minutes closer, whatever it is, and make that up by degrees. Don't make it all up at right now and just chalk it up to kind of being unfair. I completely agree with that. I wouldn't make a single change. Now, of course, if your standard is now 330 and you somehow end up in 325 shape, I think you could potentially make some adjustments. But one, get your head on straight would be my advice. Two, Go execute your plan as you had planned it. There's really nothing else you can do. But the first topic is important because I know there's a lot of people rattled about this that, you know, have various feelings on all sides about about this topic. But you need to and, and we've had a week to deal with it at this point. As you listen to it, you maybe had longer than that, but you need to put that behind you. Let it go. Get out all the frustrations, maybe channeling some of us in our rant in the first part of the show. But you got to let it go. You got to put it behind you because ultimately whatever energy you're putting to being frustrated about this situation will not help you on race day. So do what you need to do to get it out of your head 
and focus on executing the race that you had already trained for. So we really wouldn't recommend any adjustments other than getting your head on straight. At this point in training, it's too late in the game to to really make big training adjustments that will affect your fitness on race day. And so all you can do is, is, as Steve said, take an honest assessment of where you are and go execute a race plan that will allow you to deliver on that. And then let the cards fall where they may. And then after that, you can reassess and think about how you might go into your next training block going after potentially a little faster time. So that is probably the best segue into, okay, what does that mean for those people that are thinking about this longer term? What does this mean about what they need to do to raise their game to either meet or exceed these new standards? And so we wanted to talk through some tips there. Some of them might be training, but most of them I think will end up coming down to mindset, Steve. The first one we wanted to talk about is sort of suck it up. Raise your game. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Stop being mad about it. No matter how you feel about it, no matter whether you agree with us or or agree with what Boston's doing, it doesn't change the fact that you now have to run underneath a new standard and you need to run underneath it in such a way that you beat everybody else who's, who's trying to achieve that same goal, which means you've got to raise your game. And just recognize that. And for me, as I talk to athletes about this, and I think my perspective as a coach is going to be to think longer term for them, to say, okay, if 330 is your standard, and if we're wondering what the new cutoff will be underneath that standard, then what time do I need to think about so that I don't have to worry about any of that bullshit, right? Do I need to think about 320? Do I need to think about 315? Do I need to think about 310 as a female in that category? And if so, set that as your bar and then go about a process to go get that number because somewhere along the way, you'll get a time in that journey that will allow you to get on the starting line. And before that, and if... And if not before that, certainly by the time you get to it. And so my first advice would be raise your game, set a much higher bar than you'll need, and then think long-term about how you can go get that. So I agree with you, Chris, but I go further. (laughs) Even further. Even further. I say don't – as soon as they – if they move – Chris and I will disagree on this topic, but we haven't brought it up yet, so I'm bringing it up now (laughs) – If they decided to move the standard 10 minutes for both the men and the women in every age group down, the fields would fill. They would, the fields will be full in 10-minute jumps because people will step up to the plate once they know what the plate is. I truly believe this. I, I have seen it in far more um, – with, with, a, with, a, with a group of people who were more talented – so I watched this. I think our listeners who may have been paying attention have heard this story before. But a number of years ago, I was qu- trying to get help some athletes get qualified for the U.S. Olympic trials in the 5,000 meters. And the standard to get to the U.S. championships the year before the Olympic trials changed for women by 25 seconds in a 5K. They went from 15.50 for women to 15, except not 20, 25 seconds, 15.50, changed 25 seconds to 15.25. 
in one year. They made that announcement like December or it w- there was not a chance or opportunity for those women to quote unquote get 25 seconds faster. Those, five fif- those 1550 women were not likely from a training perspective to get the time that they needed. They, Chris, they had the same number of women on the starting line of the U.S. championships for that race as they had in years before. And the vast majority of them ran under the two, 235 mark. I mean, 15.35 mark, so 10 seconds slower than the time that they needed because they do it a little bit different. They did what we suggested earlier in this where they give you a standard that you automatically make it and then they just push it up to so that you, but you get a field, a, a field filled to a certain point. So anyway, the point I'm making is that I watched in one year a huge, what I would call a monumental change in performance for women in terms of expectations and women across the country stepped to it in six to nine months as if no change had happened before as if the, the old time didn't even exist so i that's a that's a story of one but i have also watched year after year after year after year my athletes that i coach consistently be be ready and prepared for more than they thought and i think the boston qualifying standards are are make people's minds much smaller and it, it does not allow people, it's created an arbitrary number that some group of people decided got this number of people on a starting line. And I think it's wonderful to have that challenge. And I love Boston there as a, an experience for people to feel like they're master class at what they do. Because I think that's what Boston is. It proves you're master class at this art of running. But it's still much less than every single athlete that's listening to our podcast right now is capable of. I truly believe even people right now who are four-hour and 30-minute marathoners have the capability of being Boston qualifiers. They just don't have the time, energy, effort, or the vision to get there. And so my argument is this. Continue to follow sound training principles. As Chris mentioned, train for the long term. Make a three-year goal, a five-year goal, where you want to be down the road. But keep it flexible. I always tell every great athlete that I coach, don't try to put a time on where you're going to be because it's going to be very hard for your mind to go past that time when the time comes and now you've created an arbitrary barrier to success or an arbitrary arbitrary barrier to getting improvement based on some number you decided in your head and in this case it happens to be a number that's decided by the Boston Athletic Association so I say there's good news here people all of you are capable of getting the Boston qualifier. You just have to start doing the work. And I would say, stop looking at that number as the most important thing and start looking at your fitness as the most important thing. Start looking at your relationship to your running as the most important thing. Um, and you know, Chris, there's a few questions I would have people ask. Like what? Why do you want to run Boston? <laughs> like, why does Boston matter? Um, you know, this is in a sense is is really sort of a sort of a, a, a an aside to what's your purpose, right? Um, but it's much more visceral, and it's a way for people to really start thinking about purpose statements. But what's your Boston statement? If you really want to get to Boston, tell us why. Why do you want to get to Boston? Because I think that if you're clear about the objective that you have to get to Boston, then it be, can become um, an incredibly motivating and empowering thing because one, it shows you your weak spots. It shows you your places where your habits are not working for you. It shows you where 
maybe your volume is not where it needs to be from a training perspective, that your focus on your results is not where it needs to be. And so you need to align your workload and your mental training load and all the other things. Is your load equal to the goal that you have of getting your Boston qualifier? And so if you know why you're trying to get your Boston qualifier, it makes it a lot easier to start to parse out the varying things that are keeping you from reaching, reaching that goal. It's a good point. I mean, I have this conversation all the time with people who come to me and say, hey, I want to qualify for Boston. And I talk to them about the journey that that means, the challenge that that means, the commitment that that means. And I also ask them this question, why Boston? And a lot of them, the answer simply comes down to, well, because everybody else wants Boston because it's the standard by which all everyday runners are judged without really understanding what that means. And I will say that Boston is definitely a worthy goal, but you need to have a personal relationship with that goal. One thing I recommend people do if they haven't already is watch the Boston documentary. I've talked about it on this podcast several times. It's a really good way to kickstart the thinking about why you want Boston because it gives you the full history. It connects to the 2014 race where the year after the bombing where Meb won and where Shalane ran a hell of a race that day. And so it there's just so many good stories in there between the, the past and the present day that show you why this race means what it does. It also gives you a lot of info on the behind the scenes work that it takes just to put on the race, which makes you realize how much Boston cares about the race as a city. And that adds depth to how you might feel about it so go watch the boston documentary and answer that question that steve asked which is why do you want it because if if it's just about getting a standard that everybody else wants then yeah you're always going to be probably frustrated and probably always come up short because you don't want it bad enough and these new standards wherever they end up falling are going to take the pressure or have to be able to take the pressure. So set the bar high for yourself. Look well beyond the standards. You know, I tend to believe, Steve, that you got to set some kind of line out there to go after just to give you a perspective. But, but it should be well below the Boston qualifying standards. I mean, case in point, we have an athlete on team rogue who came in to our season with a 344 i believe pr she's now training at three hour paces <laughs> after basically six months of working on our program <laughs> we've kind of consistently <laughs> dropped the bar for her at, at every turn because she's exceeded it and not because she was doing it herself but simply because she got with a group of people that were pushing the limits and realized hey i can keep up and then kind of gradually worked her way <laughs> to a point of now literally legitimately having a chance to break three hours at and, and have over a 40-minute PR at CIM because she didn't set any limits. You know, in those cases, especially with a, a runner relatively new to the marathon, I often don't set goals for them because I say, look, let's focus on the process, and the process will tell us where you should be. And so there is something to what you're saying, Steve, but I just want to make sure people, if they're thinking about a, a standard that they set it well beyond, if they have one, 
well beyond the the current Boston standard or what they could be. I mean, because look, if you're a female and you run 310, you're going to get into Boston, right? No doubt. And if you're a guy and you run 250, you're going to get into Boston. No doubt. So set those standards high and then think long term about it. I mean, there's so many, there's such a temptation for people to rush on this. And that as a coach is frustrating to me because when you rush, you sacrifice your long term potential. I was having this conversation with one of my athletes recently who had who she was one that ended up just off the standard this year. Her her time was in the lower four minutes. Her her time to the cutoff was in the lower four minutes. So she missed it. And and she asked me the question, can I do Dallas to try to get the new Boston standard? And she but she had as whereas previously she had not planned a race until the spring and I was like, no, why would you do that? <laughs> First of all, now we have a full year to respond to this new standard. So why would I rush and do something in two months? But even that, to me, even a year perspective is too short. I mean, why are we in such a rush? Like, First of all, we know that running is a long-term development game, that you need years of consistency to develop your aerobic system in ways that will show you your potential so why are we rushing to get to Boston, you know, focus on the process, commit to long-term training, learn to enjoy it, find a group that you enjoy doing it with, and it will come to you if you put the pieces together in a way to optimize your development. But if you're always rushing to that next marathon and short-cutting your training, short-circuiting proper development, skipping some of the pieces that we talk about on here like having a 5k cycle every now and then or working on a half marathon distance every now and then, then you're not going to reach your potential and potentially jeopardize your ability to get to the goal ever. So let go of this need to do it tomorrow. Give yourself a three to five year window to reach your potential because honestly, by that point, Boston will be in the rear view anyway. Yeah, it's a, I was about to say, there's your recipe for guaranteeing a Boston qualifying standard don't get ahead of yourself. So, Chris, this could actually be um, our running pet peeves episode number two, <laughs> right. because I've been we've been ranting. I'm about to rant again. This whole idea of everybody that tells me I want to get ready for a race in September. We live in Austin, fucking Texas. Train in the summer here. I don't. I'm uncomfortable with people running in October marathons with the training that we have because I'm not sure I've got a real a real clear assessment scale to tell an athlete that they're going to be able to have success for what they want to accomplish at a marathon if they run it the first week of when Chicago is always hard for me to tell an athlete you're ready to run your race because I haven't seen enough results from them that have been not adjusted for weather related conditions because it's so nasty here. So when somebody tells me they want to run a race in September, it's a fucking goddamn crapshoot. Like I have no idea. You did this. What? How many years ago, Chris, where you came to me and said, I want to get a BQ. You were easily going to get your BQ, right? Because you needed to get three Oh five or whatever it was. Right. And so you said to me, I'm just going to go out and run this little podunk race and I'm going to get my qualifier. Cause it's a bought last chance Boston qualifier kind of race. And you remember, Chris, I viscerally <laughs> hated this idea. And I realized that I was um, bringing 
a big pet peeve that hadn't been well thought out to bear. And then when I thought about it in your particular scenario, I was like, oh, this is actually a perfect situation. This is a great training opportunity. So while I'm not against it for certain reasons, I'm certainly against it. But then you went out. Remember that race, Chris? I mean, you were fighting tooth and nail. You were hanging on for dear life. You were like one of the hardest races you've ever run, you told me, was trying to get your BQ at that little tiny race. I was trying to go to the 2014 Boston, so it was a special circumstance. Yes, it was. And I would have, I will always do that with someone I know is prepared because I know that the experience, no matter what happens out there, that it's going to be much more about what they want rather than where their current fitness is. So you were going to make that happen if you really wanted it. And the conditions and the... Because these races that they choose, they're either downhill and you have to be prepared for it. They're in heat and you have to be ready for that. They're typically much smaller in terms of not very many people running the races. So you're ending up doing basically a solo race. And Chris, I will tell you, I have not done any systematic survey of the number of athletes that I've had run races in August or September. But I would say, based on my opinion, that somewhere around a 10% success rate. 90% fail and 10% succeed. And these are fit people who have been training with me in Team Rogue for many, many years. So we're not just talking fly-by-night, not experienced runners. And I just viscerally hate this idea. Again, it's a thing about shortcuts and using the easy way to get it. Let's look at the longer-term perspective. Let's put long-term training principles in play and give your coach enough time and your body enough time to adapt to those challenges and you will more than qualify for your Boston qualifying time if you give enough chance. And if you've got an hour to make up, if you're an hour away from your your, your Boston qualifier, I'm telling you right now, start training. You can still get it. You got two chances. You either get fitter and you get fitter and you get fitter or you stay the same fitness and you age up and you age well because that's the other thing with boston is that there's this opportunity and there's no shame in my opinion for people who get their time based on the shift in age that's game in a system that's using what's available to you to get what you need to get it's not a shortcut it's using what's there and being smart and and deliberate about the way that you're going to attack the thing that you really want but if you're an hour away from a bq i truly believe you can still get a bq so don't quit dreaming it just start doing the work to get there absolutely so that's one point give yourself time second point which you've already kind of alluded to, but I wanted to make sure we emphasize it, is you've got to take the mental game, the mental preparation seriously. And I know those that have listened to us and are most of our audience members probably do at some level take it seriously because we've had our big mental training series. We talk about it all the time. We talk about running with purpose all the time. But I wonder, and so I know people at some intellectual level recognize that we might know what we're talking about, and maybe they've done a little bit of work to kind of think about it. But for those that are really serious about this, I want to I want to ask, or I guess ask the rhetorical question: Have you really done the th- everything we've talked about from a mental training standpoint? Because if the goal is big and scary, then you will find help, support in the mental training protocols we talked about or we've talked about in our mental training series. And I would ask you not just to think about it, not just to ponder it, not just to let it you know, ruminate in your, in your brain, but rather sit down and actually do the work. 
write down the statement of purpose, even if that is simply to answer the question, I want to run Boston because. Take that. Develop a vision, a vision board. Tie it to specific goals. Really assess your strengths and weaknesses. Talk it, think about, write down, talk about your fears. Put to work some of the work we've talked about in terms of using language and positive reinforcement mechanisms so that you bring yourself into a positive mind space versus a negative mind space. Hell, buy a Kara Goucher Strong Confidence Journal. Actually put those tools to work because if you're going to get this thing and it's scary to you and you think that there's no way you can do it with the new standards, then all of that stuff's going to matter in order to get it done, not just what we just talked about in terms of the training. I, Chris, I think that that is the single most important thing that we've said so far on this podcast, but I also think it's the single most important thing we've been saying on this podcast since we started it 18 months ago which is mental training. These, these, um, okay. 10% of you who listen to our <laughs> podcast are doing those techniques. <laughs> and I guarantee you, if I got all those 10 people lined up, they would say fucking slam dunk every single time. So don't lie to yourself. That's another thing. I think that's really crucial and critical here is part of that. Why do you want Boston? Don't lie to yourself. Let, you need to be true and reasonable in your assessment. If you can't be honest with yourself, who are you going to be honest with? And these mental training tools require you to be honest with yourself because it makes you be a bit vulnerable. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's much more for me to say about that except that there are so many other pages in that book of your qualifying for Boston that could be turned that you haven't turned yet. And you need to keep turning those pages. And it, you don't need to do all that, all that in one day. This, y'all, this is a journey and it's a process. Each day, as I age, I have. I'm on my, you know, I'm at a big. I'm coming up on a big birthday soon, and a year from now, I'll have a big, big birthday. So, I'm much more cognizant of the, of of a legacy slash, um, what have I done to my world, and am I leaving my world better than I came into it? Um, and I think that those. Those questions are a part of the process of moving through space. It's a part of the process that attracts most of you listeners who are still with us at this point in time, this deep into this podcast, this deep into all our podcasts. You all are a part of our congregation. And I'm going to, as your pastor, one of two pastors, to exhort you, absolutely to exhort you to do more with your running. It will pay you back. The selfishness, I'm putting air quotes around that selfishness, is a return on life flow and life change that is demonstrably beneficial to your physical health, your relationship health, your mental health, your in all areas of this world, pushing towards a huge command performance goal is a game changer. And as, as, as those of you who are under the age of 50, um, listen to me. I'm a wise man telling you that. Those of you who are over the age of 50, you can stop shaking your head yes now because you know that I'm exactly <laughs> right about what I'm talking about. 
So keep chasing it and don't worry about the selfishness aspect. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a path with heart, people. And challenging yourself and pushing yourself makes it a path with heart. But all paths with heart make us, you have to make a sacrifice. And so remember that. And that, that process of doing the mental training techniques that we've outlined um, helps guide you through what that sacrifice is and allows you an ability and sort of a path to follow that would be yours, idiosyncratically yours and yours alone, an N of one, only your journey. But there are so many others of us on that journey, and we support you. Now, the next thing I'll say is, and we've said this a bunch of times on this podcast, but you need to get a coach. If you're, if it was, look, some of you might be talented enough to pull a schedule off the internet and go get it done, but the vast majority of you probably aren't. And so you need an advisor. You need somebody who can help you figure out what you need to work on to this, this to get this goal. Pulling a schedule off the internet isn't going to do it. And so get a coach. You know, we'll be opening up our podcast training group again later this year. We'll have details coming about that coming out about that relatively soon. So stay tuned for that. But we aren't the only option out there. There are plenty of legitimate qualified coaches. Some of them virtual. Some of you might some who might actually be in person in your cities who could help you figure out how to create a path to get you there. But you need another voice that can help you really figure out what your weaknesses are, help you figure out what you need to work on and give you a plan to get there. I, yeah, I couldn't <laughs> agree <laughs> more. I will add one other thing though, Chris, and that's, I also have been watching with, um, I took for granted the rogue running community that we have here in Austin, Texas. I take it for granted all the time and how, how big of an impact that, having a place for them to come every once a week for quality or twice a week for quality and then for a long run on the weekends, how big of an impact it has on them. But I'm, I have been, my eyes are awoken as I continue to work with our podcast training group and have been surprised as I know you have, Chris, about how community can be generated and developed, um, not just physically present with another person but also through the interwebs and so i say that and i also think you need to find a community of like-minded people who have a similar um a similar attitude towards challenging themselves to achieve big hairy audacious goals because if you don't find people in your world who also feel that um you know, the post-run highs aren't going to last enough. They're not going to be enough. The, uh, the nailing your long run, first 18-mile long run in, your long, in a marathon prep is not going to be enough. And missing your goal time by five minutes will show the weakness of needing to have other people who understand Number one, they need to understand understand what it means to have a big, hairy, audacious goal and to take risks and to make sacrifices and to be, air quotes, selfish enough to go after this kind of thing. And there'll be a support structure when everything else in the rest of your world tells you mediocrity and not and rolling over and turning the on the snooze and not getting out of bed to go do the work or pushing away from that third 
alcoholic beverage or choosing the right foods that you need to choose because you have another goal, you need other people that choose to do those same things on a week, day-to-day basis, a week-to-week basis, month-to-month basis, and a year-to-year basis. And if you find those people in your tribe, if you find your tribe, they will support you and you can get through those tough times. If you have a spouse or a loved one who also feels the same way, that is doubly impactful. But some of you don't have that and that doesn't give you an excuse not to continue to press and push the edges of what you're capable of as a human being. So I'd say, while you do need a coach, you definitely could use a coach, and a coach can be incredibly valuable and impactful. But a community is equally important and equally necessary because it's very. this is a very hard road to roll on your own, and you need other people. agree with that. Now, some people might be asking, hey, guys, you've talked for an hour and 20 minutes, and you haven't told us one thing about training and how my training should change. And that's because we've chronicled all of that. We don't necessarily have to rehash it. Go back to episode one, go back to episode seven, go back to a lot of our episodes in terms of what we talk about. There's no rocket science there that we haven't already shared with you. Now, I will highlight a couple of items just as reminders. One, of course, is that miles matter. And we'll say that until we're blue in the face. (laughs) Yes, we will. If you... you need to ultimately bump your mileage and the amount of aerobic volume that you're doing in order to see the breakthroughs you want to see in your running. And you need to do that in a way that you're able to hold it consistently over the course of cycle and years in order to see the full benefits. So I'm going to rehash that point. And the second point I'm going to make is that stop doing marathons every six months. You need to work other <laughs> systems. Right. I mean, we just talked about it in what the what is a race require series. You need to be mixing in 5K cycles with half marathon cycles, with 10K cycles, with your marathon cycles in order to work all the systems, work all the pace ranges. Because if you work on those faster races or shorter race distances, then it will translate to being able to run your marathons faster. And if you're not doing that, if you're pigeonholing yourself in just running a marathon every six months or a marathon every five months or four months, then you won't see your potential. You'll pl- you'll plateau and you might not get what you want. So those are the two that I would highlight on the training side. If that matters to, to you, what would you say, Steve, anything else to add there? I, I, I just think that, um, my college coach who I've been reminiscing and thinking about, we lost him in the last year. I'm thinking about him a lot, and I fought so many of the great lessons that he tried to teach me um, because he never really was trying to teach me to be an athlete, and I always just wanted him to teach me to be an athlete. I didn't want some old man telling me how to be a good man or how to be a good person. Um, but two things that he—and I, and I still argue that um, as a human being, I'm, I'm so much better off because he did do those things, and I have learned all those lessons— but from a running perspective, I want to give you, leave you with two things that I learned from him that have been so impactful, especially in the last um, year or so as I've been sort of making this run back at running as I'm doing. And it's the words rhythm and flow. And probably this has a lot to do with my nature and who I am as a human being and how I look at the world. But my coach was a scienti- scientist. He was a football player, had no, never ran competitively in his entire life, went and got his 
master's degree and his PhD degree, PhD in exercise physics in exercise science, and came at the sport from a from a mind of a of a scientist, and that's why we didn't resonate in a lot of ways, and we fought mostly through my career. But yet he still said the two most important things that an athlete needed to achieve was to get to rhythm and get to flow. And I truly would say to anybody who's trying to get a BQ at this point in time, that if you focused, if you took some of Stan Huntsman's, his, these two words, and focused on rhythm and flow, and by that I mean finding your natural rhythm and challenging yourself with that rhythm and pressing up against the edge of it. Not every day. There's a day, There's you know, each day has its purpose. But find a rhythm to your days, to your weeks, to your month, and it'll happen over time that you'll get faster and faster. So find a rhythm and a routine and a consistency and a rhythm in your running and a rhythm in your life. And then I would say flow. Now, this is a much harder thing to describe because it's so much about your personal experience. But here's the problem with the entire scientific method and the entire idea of materialism in the first place is that can't prove what your experience is it's inner and it can't tell you your number of your ability to run x number of miles at 10k pace does not mean you're going to run 26.2 miles in a goal time however your ability to flow through those miles and to feel your edges and to feel a process and know where you sit in that process is going to pay much greater dividends because your experience of the run is far more important than the nuts and bolts pace per mile that you're looking at right then. And if I can argue that getting out of that bossed around by your, by your geekometer, um, even bossed around by your coach in some cases, if your coach is trying to push you too hard or too soft, and trust your own internal flow and spend some time trying to connect with that. Because that's part of what connects you to the entire universe. It's also what connects you to your place and the space that you're in. And it also connects you, if you're tight with your community, it connects you with your community. So I would say, as we've talked about all these things that matter from um, sort of the science of the sport, I also want to leave you with the idea that finding your rhythm and finding your flow could be the two most valuable things you can do. And I wish you Godspeed on that journey because that is a lifelong process. But when you find it, you will know it. As we say, Chris, right? You'll know it when you see it because you've been in it. Um, and I would suggest that your experience of this sport, it will continue to give you back and give you back if you follow that rule of staying in rhythm and staying in flow. What say you as I pontificate? Well, I say <laughs> that's a good way to wrap it. I say Boston raises the standards, so game on. <laughs> this group will raise its standards accordingly. Hopefully this episode has given you some motivation to go after the new standards and then some. And we would love to hear your stories on that journey as they might come. And of course, look out for more information coming on how to get into our podcast group so you can go after those standards with us if you was, would would so choose so there you go. That's episode 95 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.